holy word to the letter of 2 Peter. Our focus this morning will be 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. I'll be reading 1 through 21. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, forgive us of our forgetfulness. of our repeated, idolatrous, sinful forgetfulness. 
And praise be to you for your gracious, merciful, repeated, unfailing reminders. And so, Father, send your Spirit to, by means of your Word, stir us up, awaken us, and remind us of all that is held in your Son for us and that will be consummate at his coming. In Christ's name, amen. The saints instinctually know that they need the word of the Lord. Peter told us in his first letter that it was by the living and abiding word that we were born again. And by the word, God not only creates new life, but he sustains and strengthens that new life. Whenever many were leaving Jesus because of his hard words, you remember when he turned to the twelve and he asked them, will you go also? And it was Peter who responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else could we go? Paul told us that the Word of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. And though the saints instinctually know this, we know we need the Word, I'm afraid that many go astray in understanding how it is that they need the Word. Too many seek some kind of mystical experience in reading the Bible. As though it's not enough that the Bible speak just as, as the words plainly and clearly intend on their surface level. We, we want them to be a vehicle to, through some, to something more private and individual and something that's spoken just to me and, and is about right here and right now. Well, certainly the Bible as we read it, there's a supernatural experience involved. I just said that it's by the word that we're born again and it's by the word that we're strengthened. But what if I told you that one of the principal reasons you should read the Bible is simply to remember? Would that feel like a letdown? Would you be wanting something more, something beyond this? When I take time to seriously study the Bible, I almost always learn something new. But more than that, I'm remembering afresh. Even in, in my kind of learning of something new, it's, it's a deeper kind of remembering in a way in that sense. It's, it's delving deeper into this thing that I already know and seeing it in more of its glory and beauty and truth. Approaching the Bible, always looking for something new, is a dangerous venture. Heresies are born that way. Instead of seeing, seeking something 
new and personal and insightful. Go to the Bible longing to remember the old, the communal, the unchanging that we are always in danger of forgetting. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. Here, Peter's intent in writing is clearly expressed. He, he gives this reason that we really see so often throughout Scripture as to why he's saying what he is. It's to remind us so that we might remember, that we might recall. Peter does not have the objective in this letter of imparting something new, but of reminding us reminding us of something we're in danger of forgetting. He writes, verse 12, to remind. Therefore, I intend always to remind you. Now notice that Peter wants to remind us because of something, and he wants to remind us despite something. Therefore, therefore, I intend always to remind you. Therefore, tells us he's reminding us because of something. And then he says, therefore, I intend to remind you of these qualities, though you know them. Though tells us that he wants to remind us despite something. He wants to remind us because of something and despite something. Therefore, what's the because? What has led up to this reminder? This therefore goes back up to verses 3 and through 11 as far as I can see altogether. And so Peter is telling us because of the two grants of Jesus Christ and all the implications that follow. Because Jesus has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Christ. Because He has granted you these great and precious promises through which you partake of the divine nature. And because, therefore, you should make every effort at these Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And because if these are yours, you'll be kept from being ineffective and unfruitful. And because if these are lacking, you're blind, nearsighted, having forgotten. Because if you, if you keep these, pursue these, you will prove your calling or confirm your calling and election. Because these things are so, Peter wants to remind us of these qualities. You see, through knowledge, Jesus grants these qualities and therefore he reminds us. Through these promises, we partake of the divine nature. Therefore, he reminds us. These qualities, as we practice them, confirm our calling and election. And thus, it would be that Peter would remind us of these things, lest we forget them. And Peter would remind us of these, even though... They, we with them, even though we know these things, verse 12, and are established in the truth. Now, unfortunately, so many have sat under such poor teaching that they don't know many of these things. So many have sat under such poor teaching that they aren't established in the truth. And yet, 
Even so, I say this without hesitation, if they are truly a saint of God, their biggest problem still remains this. Not what they don't know, but what they do know and continually forget. We need to grow in knowledge. One of my greatest joys has, has been to see so many grow in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Some of you have grown to understand justification in a more significant way and, and with that imputation and the, the active and passive righteousness of Christ and it's led to a deeper peace and confidence of how you stand before God. Some of you have grown to understand the riches of your salvation more fully as you see the distinctions between things such as redemption and propitiation. Others have grown in your understanding of the holiness of God. And you revere Him in a more profound way. I think many of you have expressed your joy to grow in understanding the fullness of the sovereignty of God and election. We need to grow in knowledge. The knowledge of these things is vital to the flourishing of your soul. And yet, yet, even so, the greatest threat to your spiritual vitality isn't what you haven't learned, but what you are in danger of forgetting. How often is your sin due to a sinful forgetfulness? A blocking it out, putting it aside, not wanting to recall of the holiness of God. How often do you live as though God were not omnipresent how often do you react to a situation in life as though God were not sovereign likewise after you have sinned and, and guilt is crushing you how often do you forget that the basis upon which you come to the throne of grace is not what you've done but what Christ has done how often do you forget that you're justified by faith and faith alone, trying to merit some kind of approval from your Father? How great our forgetfulness. It isn't as though these are small details. It's not like we're forgetting to brush our teeth. We're forgetting to breathe. It's not as though we can't recall what the weather forecast was for Tuesday. We can't remember that the sun has risen today. Capturing the need of our being reminded, Luther put it this way, it, referring to the gospel, it is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Our greatest problem is not ignorance. 
but forgetfulness. And our forgetfulness is no mere intellectual or physical weakness. It is a sinful inclination. We want to forget. Judges 8.34 tells us that the people of Israel did not remember Yahweh their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies. Now, you know the book of Judges, the context is the reason they were not remembering is because they whored after Baal. Knowing these things and being, an est- being established in the church, truth excuse me, is no reason to be exempt from remembering. It's because we already do know them that we need to be reminded of them again and again. And this need is brought out more clearly by Peter's next words in verse 13, that he thinks it right as long as he's in the body to stir them up by way of reminder. To stir up here, the, the word means to awaken, to arouse. We get drowsy with a sinful slumber perpetually. Peter vividly demonstrated this in a physical way, did he not? You remember whenever Jesus takes the disciples aside in the garden to pray, he's taken Peter, James, and John further along with them, and he has told them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Watch, pray. He went aside He falls to the ground and he cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Returns to the three, finds them sleeping, and says to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus goes away a second time and returns to again find them asleep in their response. Mark tells us they did not know what to answer him. And this is repeated yet a third time. We need continual reminders because sinful slumber comes upon us again and again. We need to be reminded of these things so often because we remember to sin so easily. And Peter thinks it's right to do this, he says, as long as he's in his current body or it could be translated tent. It's made him clear It's been made clear to him by Christ that the time for putting off this temporary tent in hope of a new permanent one is near. Remember John recorded for us that Jesus before his ascension told Peter, truly, truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Well, now, in some way, Peter has come to understand that time is near. 
And so as Peter begins to sleep the sleep of death, he's, he's preparing his soul to sleep, he wants to use what time he has left to arouse and awaken others by way of reminder. He's making every effort to remind them, verse 15, every effort so that after his departure or after his exodus, that's the Greek word there, they might be able to recall these things. Now, how is Peter making every effort so that they might be able to recall? Chiefly, this letter. This is made clear in chapter 3 where Peter tells them, verse 1, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Second Peter serves this purpose of a reminder, as does all the Bible. The Bible is a book full of reminders. God came to His people and He delivered His word orally. The ten words. But they and so many more that Moses rehearsed for them verbally were written down and recorded so that the people of God might remember. We need reminders so that we might be able to recall at any time these things. Sin's promises never let up. We are bombarded with them continually and we need reminders just as frequently. Peter has called for us to make every effort at godliness and now he's telling us he's making every effort to remind us of these things so that we might recall them. Peter's making every effort here in this letter to remind us to fuel our making every effort at godliness, which effort involves reminding ourselves again and again. If Peter's made every effort to remind us, shouldn't we make every effort to remember? May the space of your life be cluttered with reminders. May post-it notes, in a spiritual sense, abound. May your life be littered with reminders. Gather on Sunday, on the Lord's day, to remember. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. We don't say that just on, on, on one Sunday of the year. That is to be the expression of our hearts every Lord's Day as we gather to remember He has risen. Gather to sing to one another spiritual songs and hymns to remind one another, encourage one another in the faith. Partake of the Lord's table to remember. Listen to Songs that are rich in theology and biblical truth throughout your week. To remember. Read your Bible every day. To remember. Study it. 
to more deeply ingrain it into your soul so that you might remember it, memorize it so that you might be able to recall it at any time, meditate on it throughout the day so that you do not forget. Listen to good sermons and and podcasts full of biblical truth as another means of remembering. Use your catechism as another way of bolstering your memory. Oh, how jealous Peter's original audience would be at all that we have at our disposal to remember and how guilty we are for all the ways we use them to forget. Peter has been speaking in the first person. You notice all the eyes. Therefore, I... Verse 13, I think it right, as long as I am in this body. Verse 14, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. Verse 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure. And then in verse 16, there's a transition to we. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you. Peter's been speaking as an individual apostle in a specific instance of his writing to remind them, and now he's going to unfold what this we, this apostolic we, what the apostles handed to them, what they delivered to them, that of which they need to be reminded. And that's kind of the surface level of how this four works in verse 16. He's writing to remind them, because of what he, as part of the apostles, what they delivered to them, which they need to remember. That's kind of a surface level, but let's, let's go a little bit beneath the surface to see what might be the most prominent connection that lies deeper underneath, though I think there are many connections. Peter's told us that through the promises granted to us by Christ, we partake of the divine Nature and, and I've tried to argue that there's both a decisive and progressive aspect to so much of this passage. You, through that promise, you came to it, decisively happened. You came to partake in the divine nature. But yet there's a growing kind of communion with the Father whereby you partake more and more and you are conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And all of that happens continually in your life through the promises of God. As the word of God sanctifies you, and you behold his glory, and you become like, like what you behold. So, though there's this progressive, there's this decisive act, there's this progressive nature, through the promises, you partake of the divine nature. And now, Peter's going to talk about the consummate promise, the climactic promise, the promise in which you come to drink to the full all the other promises, and that is the coming of Christ. The way of life that we're to make every effort at is grounded and fueled by the promises And this climactic promise of Jesus' coming means the fullness of every other promise. Such that if this promise isn't true, none of them are. If this promise, 
the promise of the coming of Christ is void, godliness will not be. No reason to make every effort at these things. Because these things are fueled by the knowledge of all you have in Christ. And you have nothing in Christ if you don't have this. The promise of Jesus' return is being attacked by false teachers as a cleverly devised myth. Here's the reason why we need to read whole portions of Scripture, letters, books. We need to read them in order to read them. You have to read 1 Peter, 2 Peter, all the letters of Scripture. You have to read them more than once to understand them. And here's a great example because there's things that are understood by the original audience here that you don't get unless you've read through the letter multiple times. And so I think that 3, 1 through 4 are incredibly enlightening for understanding what Peter's saying here. I think they're the most insightful portion of the text that illuminate everything else in this letter. 3, 1 through 4. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. The promises. The promise of His return. Remember the predictions and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So think, making every effort at these virtue, knowledge, godliness. Knowing this first of all. Bringing this one, this thing prominently to their mind. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The danger to our forgetfulness is double. It's easy to forget, not simply because of this danger within, but without. We want to forget, and it is all too easy to find false teachers who will tell us that our forgetting is wise, and it's good, and it's healthy, and even righteous. You don't need to remember the God of wrath and judgment in the Old Testament. That's not who's revealed for you in the Old. Or in this instance, you'll live with a kind of freedom if you realize that this return of Christ, it's something spiritual. Or it's something meant to, to give you hope in the now, but Really, this idea of a physical resurrection and return is something to be scoffed at. Well, Peter here doesn't want to simply remind them of this promise. You see that he argues for it. It was not a cleverly devised myth. And he goes on to unfold his eyewitness testimony. He, he wants to bolster 
the promise of Christ's coming in a surprising way by speaking of the transfiguration. He says he was an eyewitness of his majesty, his majesty referring to this glory and honor that he received. And glory is a reference to Christ's appearance at this moment. Luke tells us that his clothes became dazzling white. Matthew records that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Honor refers to the words of commendation declared by the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. So Peter's eyewitness testimony here as an eyewitness testimony so often involves, involves not simply what he saw, but what he heard. He was an eyewitness of the majesty. And that majesty was both had this aspect of glory, how Christ appeared. His glory was manifest. And the honor that was bestowed upon him in his words of commendation. But how does this relate to Jesus' power and coming? All three Gospels... Every one of them, the synoptic gospels that record for us the transfiguration, all three of them just prior to speaking of Jesus' transfiguration, speak of his coming. For example, in Matthew we read, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Mark and Luke record much the same with their varied emphases. So following on the heels of his speaking of his returning in glory... the gospel writers record this sight of His glory. The transfiguration is not so much a flashback to the pre-incarnate glory of the Son. It's not a flashback to the eternal glory of the Son. It is a flash forward to the glory of of the resurrected and exalted God-man, the Christ. It's not so much a sight of His glory as He has eternally held it, as it is a sight of the glory that is to be bestowed upon Him precisely because He is the Christ with whom the Father is well pleased. The Father's words of commendation solidify this. They allude to several passages in the Old Testament. In the second psalm, the king is spoken of as the son. The most immediate reference being David. And and it's speaking of David in his coronation as the king is God's son, is representative in a sense. But this is fulfilled in Christ. David in the seventh verse, anticipating the Christ, sings, I will tell of the the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is as David is functioning in that capacity as God's king over his people, his representative, his image, his son. This is fulfilled in Christ the king. Concerning God's delight in the son, 
Isaiah was speaking of the servant of Yahweh. You go to those later chapters in Isaiah and you'll see sometimes the servant of Yahweh is Israel. Sometimes it's this Messiah figure. The reason being is the Messiah represents the people as their prophet, priest, and king. And speaking of the servant of Yahweh, Yahweh declares this in Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant. Look at him. Whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then, notice this little detail. Peter says that this was manifest to them. They, they were with him on the holy mountain. Holy mountain. Why, why does he refer to it as a holy mountain? The best explanation I know of is that this is another allusion back to Psalm 2, where the Father says, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so it is that the power and coming of Christ are shown not to be some cleverly devised myth for this reason. Peter's already seen it. Peter has already seen the future. He's seen the glory of Christ which will be manifest in the past. And this helps make sense of the next verse, but have to deal with two interpretations that are often put forward in light of it. Two ways it could go. In the King James we read, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Or some of you might have the previous older rendition of the ESV that reads in a way very similar to that. Or you could have the updated ESV translation. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Or the New American Standard Bible has, we have the prophetic word made more sure. Those are kind of representative. Although even with those translations, you could take them both ways. Those the most clear surface meaning lends to two different interpretations here. The first one being that the word as recorded for us in Holy Writ, Scripture, is more sure than what Peter saw. Or that the word is more made more sure confirmed. Now let me say why I think the, I believe that the New American Standard or the ESV's update is more correct. Peter's eyewitness testimony as an apostle, I believe, has the weight of Scripture. You, you see that Peter says that, well, his argument has been that it's not a cleverly devised myth, this promise of Christ's coming, that scripture. 
And then he goes on to argue that it's not a cleverly devised myth because of what he as an apostle is testifying to. He's bolstering Scripture with his apostolic testimony. But then further, I don't think we should ever pit an apostle's testimony against Scripture itself as if one, it's pitting what has the weight of authority. We need to realize this, that all apostolic revelation, that all prophetic revelation, not all of it was recorded, but every bit of it was the Word of God. And so whenever an apostle testified to truth, it had the authority of the Word of God, whether or not he recorded it. Now, what do we have access to? We have access to the written Word. We don't have an apostle among us. So I believe that Peter is saying here that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed because of Christ. The same way that he was arguing that this promise of his appearing, of his coming, it's no myth because I've already seen that glory. Because Christ has come, the prophecies, all the predictions, all of them are shown to be more fully confirmed because Christ is the fulfillment of them all. Here's the way Tom Schreiner comments. The prophetic word of Scripture is made more sure by the transfiguration for the transfiguration confirms the proper interpretation of Old Testament Scripture. That is that there is a future coming of Christ for judgment and salvation. And so because the word is more fully confirmed, because Christ is the consummation of it all, and he has come, because it's been more fully confirmed in Christ, we should pay attention. Verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. This world is perishing. We need light. This is our light. The psalmist saying, your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. As this world grows dark, we need this promise of the dawn of a new day. A day that's already burst and our calling, being called forth out of darkness and into the light of His glory. As we remain in this dark world, looking for that day, we need to look to the promise of it in His Word. Joel spoke of this day saying, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. This day dawning is the day of His coming when He comes in judgment to deal with all His enemies. And then he speaks of the morning star. So there's this aspect of the day, this day of judgment, which Peter will unfold later in this letter as this day in which the earth is consumed with fire. And a new heaven and a new earth are born out of that. 
But as there's this aspect of judgment that day, he speaks of the morning star rising in our hearts. The morning star is a reference to Venus, which shines brightly just before the dawn as a harbinger of a new day, which is Christ. You remember whenever Balak wanted Balaam to curse Israel? Instead of cursing him, he spoke of one coming from Israel who will crush the enemies of God. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. And that this star is said to arise in our hearts, I think speaks to this as far as the flow of the context justifies, is that now we look to this light in Scripture but whenever Christ comes again, there will be such union and intimacy involved. It's as though this, the, the light that, that we get from the scripture, it's now come to such completion and fullness in Christ's coming that that star is said to rise in our hearts. Further, we should pay attention to this word, knowing, verse 20, from whence it came, now here again we have two interpretations. It's debated whether verse 20 speaks to our understanding of the Word of God or to the origin of the Word of God. Knowing that this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And so Rome uses this text to bolster her doctrine that, that Mother Church, the Roman Catholic Church, is the interpreter of the Word of God. She is the authority. You don't have a right in and of yourself to determine what the Word of God means. Rome declares the meaning of the Word. But verse 21 makes it clear that the idea is not the understanding of Scripture, but the origin of Scripture. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. You see, whenever the prophets received revelation, it was often in the form of a vision or a dream. And God made known to them not simply this vision or a dream, but the interpretation thereof, the meaning thereof. That's the idea. What's the meaning? And the meaning isn't left to someone's own interpretation. The someone's own there is a reference to the prophets. It wasn't left to their own interpretation as to what it meant when they received revelation, the meaning was laid out for them. You see this with Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1, the word of Yahweh came to me saying, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then Yahweh said to me, you have seen well for I'm watching over my word to perform it. Don't have time to go into how those correlate, but notice he didn't just receive this idea, this vague concept. He received the interpretation of what it meant. And again, the word of Yahweh came to me a second time. Notice it's the word, but he's asking him, what did you see? And Jeremiah says, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then Yahweh said to me, out of the north, the evil will break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. See, this is the locus classicus. That is the classic location, the go-to spot for the doctrine of inspiration. All too often, 
It's 2 Timothy 3.16 that's put forward as the locus classicus for the doctrine of inspiration. And that's because some translations poorly render it. All Scripture is inspired by God. But the word they have is inspired literally means expired. There are two actions to breathing, inspiration and expiration. And what you're being told in 2 Timothy 3.16 is not that God inhaled Scripture, but that He exhaled Scripture. It is His very breath. And Timothy, then we're told not that the word was inspired, but expired. Inspiration, in contrast, refers to the way God uses men to write His Word or to speak or deliver His Word. So some false teachers would like to pit the expiration of 2 Timothy 3 against the inspiration of 2 Peter 1. How can Scripture be God-breathed if He uses men to write it? B.B. Warfield flipped this argument on its head, writing, As light that passes through the colored glass of a cathedral window, we are told, he's unfolding their argument, is light from heaven but is stained by the tints of the glass through which it passes. So any word of God which is which has passed through the mind and soul of a man must come out discolored by the personality through which it is given. And to that degree ceases to be the pure word of God. But what if this personality has itself been formed by God into precisely the personality it is for the express purpose of communicating to the word given through it just the coloring which it gives it? What if the colors of the stained glass window have been designed by the architect for the exact purpose of giving to the light that floods the cathedral precisely the tone and quality it receives from them? What if the word of God that comes to his people is framed by God into the word it is precisely by means of the qualities of the men formed by him for the purpose through which it is given? When we think of God the Lord giving by His Spirit a body of authoritative scriptures to His people, we must remember that He is the God of providence and of grace as well as of revelation and inspiration, and that He holds all the lines of preparation as fully under His direction as He does the specific operation, which we call technically in the narrow sense by the name inspiration. How can Scripture bear the marks of man's authorship and be said to be the very Word of God breathed out by Him? Because He's God. He not only crafts the words, He crafts the human pens with which He writes the words. When He wants His script to slant, as it were, He makes the human pen to match the slant. He desires. And so though Galatians bear the, bears the marks of Paul and revelation of John, 
both of them undeniably bear the mark of God. And it was not left to either one to cleverly devise myths according to their own interpretation, but they were carried along by the Spirit. And this prophetic word has been more fully confirmed by the Christ. Because Christ has come. As you read these words in light of the Christ that has come, be all the more assured He will come again. Pay attention to this word. Do not forget this word. Peter wants to remind us. He wants to stir us up. He wants to awaken us out of our slumber. Whenever the false teachers scoff at this teaching, Peter reminds them of his, his testimony as a confirmation of the return of Christ. And it's Christ who is the confirmation and the consummation of all the scriptures. Because he is, they will be for they are his word. Dick Lucas comments, although 2,000 years of church history have elapsed, there's a sense in which every generation of Christians is only the second generation. We do not have the direct knowledge and experiences of the first generation, which is why Peter takes such care to pass his experiences on to us, but neither are we at such a distance from the apostles that we need other teachers and interpreters. Peter has long since put off his tent, but he reminds us still. God reminds us still through his apostle. Here, God testifies of His Son, of all that is promised in His Son, of the promise of all promise and promises in which every other promise will come to its fullness. He reminds us of, of the Son in whom He is pleased. He reminds us of the Christ, the King, whose rule is and will one day be manifest. Saints, remember this. Godliness flows from knowledge of these promises. Saints, remember this. For from knowledge of these promises, through them, we partake of the divine nature communing with our Lord. Saints, remember this because we are so prone to the folly of forgetfulness. Saints, remember this for there are false teachers in abundance who scoff at these things. Saints, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Hallelujah. Amen. Remember this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your unending grace to remind us again 
and again of your Son. Praise be to you that all of eternity will be a remembering and increasing depth of understanding of what you have revealed to us of yourself in Christ. Where we will forever sing of his praise and glory, the Lamb of God. Until that day, have mercy on our souls and stir us up by your word. In the strong name of Jesus, I ask this. Amen.